0: Try to remember when you first became aware of the concept of endangered species. The date will obviously depend on how old you are, but we've known for decades how to keep track of at-risk animals and plants, and how to determine when their populations get low enough that they need our help to survive. And when they do find themselves critically endangered, often because of human activity, we help them. We help them in all kinds of ways, but mostly we do it through the law, at least in some places. I would guess that if I asked you which Canadian province does the best job protecting its plants and wildlife, you might guess that it's the one that markets itself as supernatural, the one with a reputation for biodiversity and environmentalism, the one with, you know, the ocean and the mountains and the rainforest and all that stuff and the one with a looming crisis that has over 2,000 species of animals and plants facing extinction. And so if you did, answer British Columbia, I'd tell you that you're wrong. And that's a problem that there are about 2,000 reasons we need to fix. Quickly. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. This is part two of a five-part series of stories for which we are partnering with the Narwhal to explore the front lines of climate change today, Sarah Cox, the environmental reporter for the Narwhal. Hello,
1: Sarah. Hello.
0: Why don't you start um, today's story, which is incredibly surprising to me, and I think uh, many people, with the animal at the center of it. Um, describe the Fisher. I'd not really heard of it before.
1: Yeah, few people have heard of this mysterious little creature. So the fisher is um, about the size of a house cat, but stretched out like a limo. And it's a forest animal and it has chocolate brown fur, a pointy face and kind of rounded ears and looks a little bit like one of those old fashioned teddy bears, but really stretched out. And uh, it's a very curious animal, it's one of the fastest animals on the planet when it comes to short bursts of speed. It's very ferocious, it will um, attack and eat a porcupine with no ill effect. And um, it's so secretive that even biologists who spend their careers studying the fisher hardly ever see them in the wild.
0: Where does it live?
1: It lives in in British Columbia. It lives in forests, and it relies on old forests with mature trees um, to den. So, for a fisher to den, it needs a a, a tree at least one hundred and twenty five years old. If it's an aspen, at least two hundred and fifty years old. If it if it um, nests or dens in a Douglas fir, and likely much older. And in each pregnant female fisher needs a few trees because a new mother grabs her young by the scruff of their necks and moves them around um, to avoid predators and and parasites. And so the the problem we have in BC is that these trees are disappearing. So the fisher is disappearing as well.
0: Can you tell me how um, you kind of got a sense of the scope of this? You met a couple named uh, the Kirsches, I believe.
1: That's right, and unfortunately, I didn't get to meet them in person because of the the COVID nineteen pandemic. So um, I spoke to them um, several times on on the phone with uh, both of them on on speakerphone, and and that had to do um, that had to make do. But um, so I, I had been wanting to write a story about bc's looming extinction crisis bc is the most biodiverse of any canadian province and people think of it by its slogan as supernatural british columbia but the reality is that we have an endangered species crisis unfolding with thousands of species on the list of species at risk of extinction. So I had kind of percolating away in my brain um, an idea to to do something about the, the extent of BC's looming extinction crisis. But I was Searching for kind of a news hook or an angle, and then a biologist let me know that just this spring, the interior populations of Fisher had moved from what we call the the blue list of species at risk of extinction to the red list. And if you if you think about the, the red list, it's kind of the equivalent of, of an ICU unit. And the blue list is more like somebody, if you compare it to a human with a chronic condition who's who's being monitored. So the interior species of Fisher moved on to the red list, and I started asking around about why and that had happened, and also asking biologists and other people if they knew anyone who had witnessed. The demise of the fisher firsthand in the interior. And a couple of people pointed me to Wayne and Lila Kirsch. And they are, are trappers. Um, they uh, have spent many years trapping fisher and other fur bearers in uh, the Nazco region, southwest of, of Prince George. And they were very careful never to trap more fisher than local populations could sustain. You know they harvested maybe twenty five to thirty five fisher each year in this area, which had some of the highest densities of fisher in all of british columbia. but over the years, as extensive clear-cut logging took place in that area, ostensibly to to deal with uh, an infestation of spruce beetle. Um, the Kirsha started to notice that they had fewer and fewer fisher in their traps and not just fisher but other animals as well you know they would get lots of weasels and they they just found the odd weasel and they also noticed that all wildlife was disappearing as the area was logged so I I got in touch with them and um, listened to their story and told their story of watching the demise of the fisher, trying to do something about it and feeling quite powerless to do anything until the situation was at a crisis.
0: So what did they try to do about it when they realized uh, how bad it was getting?
1: So um, Wayne Kirsch had been a mill worker for 37 years. Uh, He drove a forklift and loaded rail cars at, at local mills. And so he quite boldly just walked uninvited into local mill operations and started asking companies to leave behind sufficient denning and and resting trees for the fisher in accordance with BC forestry regulations. And he and his wife, Leila, they pleaded with their local MLAs. They wrote a letter to the forest minister at the time, Steve Thompson, saying that if the proposed logging cut blocks were allowed to continue at the rate, there would be no suitable habitat for fisher, and it would, without a doubt, become a, a red-listed species in the province. And I, the, when they got a response back from, from Thompson, basically it said the government was working to understand how land use objectives for managing fisher were being met. But in Wayne's words, that amounted to nobody giving a rat's ass about it.
0: You've touched on it a couple times, um, but maybe just uh, try to give us a sense of the scope of this problem, because this is not just uh, the fisher. And you, you mentioned biodiversity is threatened all over. Like, how how many species are we talking about here? Are on the blue list and the red list, for instance?
1: Okay, so just before I answer that, if I can if I may, I just wanna take a a bit of a step back and, and look at the global picture. Sure. So last year there was a, a landmark United Nations report that came out that found that nature is declining at an unprecedented rate and extinctions are accelerating with almost 1 million species at, at risk of disappearing globally and this is this is very much the the kind of the second immense challenge facing humanity right now uh, a global biodiversity crisis on top of the climate crisis and the covid-19 pandemic notwithstanding And this report was compiled over three years by 145 expert authors in 50 countries. And it warned that not only was nature declining at unprecedented rates, but that there were grave impacts on people around the world uh, that would happen if this continued. Um, The report describes... biodiversity is nature as humanity's most important life-supporting safety net and and said it is stretched almost to the breaking point and that that represents a a direct threat to human well-being in all regions of the world with, with impacts on our water and food security, our economies, our livelihoods and health. And so in that context, we look at BC's emerging extinction crisis. There are more than 1,300 species on BC's red and blue lists of species at risk of extinction. And more than another 1,000 species actually meet the requirements for red and blue listings, but they haven't been added yet, in part because more information is needed. And uh, the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada found that additional BC species, including more than one dozen unique salmon populations, are experiencing alarming declines. But those species have no provincial at-risk status either. And in this context, and, and if anybody is interested, there wants to spend some time on a a website run by the the BC Conservation Data Center. You can go on there, and you can Google any species, and in British Columbia, and you can see what its status is. And I spent some time on that list, and it's it's quite, um, yeah, it's quite shocking actually to look at the number of species on that list, species that you wouldn't expect to see there. Can
0: you give me a couple of examples?
1: Sure. So just talking about mammals, there are 68 mammal species at risk of extinction in BC, wood bison, plains bison, sea otter, bighorn sheep, doll sheep, you know, the American badger, grizzly bear. Um, And those are, those are just the mammals. There are 85 butterfly species on that list. There are 52 fish species on that list. And there are more than 700 plant species on that list.
0: How rare is it uh, for a province or a country, um, especially one, and I I don't want to sound like I'm calling them hypocritical, but especially a province that that markets itself as an environmentally friendly, uh, supernatural, as you said, province. How rare is it to not have something uh, governing this?
1: Well, Six provinces do have endangered species legislation, and that's not to say that it's perfect because the legislation frequently makes exemptions for industry. For example, on Ontario's endangered species law excludes hydro, oil and gas and wind energy development. But... Despite the limitations of, of some of that provincial endangered species legislation, scientists say it's important for, for BC and other provinces to enact it because the legislation makes it possible to hold the government responsible and, and signals that, that we take um Protection of species and their habitat seriously, and if you look just across the border at the United States, I mean, there's this image that Canada is has great environmental laws and and protects its species and and their habitat, and that everything is kind of gone gone south in the United States. But in fact, it's almost the opposite. The United States passed a a very toothy Endangered Species Act in 1973, which protects all species regardless of who has jurisdiction over the land. And that law has seen success stories emerge for a large number of endangered species. So who
0: in British Columbia uh, is fighting uh, for this kind of law or is fighting for these animals? And and what are they doing, Um, assuming the government is just making vague promises? What, What can they
1: do? So there are groups of scientists who are have been urging the BC government to enact endangered species legislation and just the month after that global biodiversity Report came out. Um, There were 18 scientists who published a paper, first of all, warning that increasing number of species in BC are threatened with extinction, and they outlined their recommendations for endangered species legislation. Um, They said that this type of legislation should um, allow for an independent oversight committee to list the species, to help organize recovery teams, to incorporate indigenous knowledge and prioritize actions to save species like the fisher from from local or, or global extinction. So scientists are very much behind the need for an endangered species law in British Columbia. And they, they're they the ones out there in the field seeing these impacts on the ground, watching these species uh, decline to the point where they need to be put on the red or blue list.
0: I wanna ask you a little bit, cause you've referenced it a couple of times. Um, What's to blame for the rapid acceleration of uh, endangered species? You mentioned clear cut logging. Is that the only problem? Um, what else is contributing to this?
1: No. So there, it, it's basically it's partly um, what scientists call the cumulative impacts on endangered species habitat. It's not necessarily any one thing, although sometimes it is. It's it's the impact of all these compounding. Um, incursions on endangered species habitat, whether it's uh, logging old growth, whether it's mining, whether it's building a pipeline, whether it's building a large hydro dam, and um, so it's it's the the impact of all of those. And I spoke to one scientist, Sally Otto, who. Um, said, well, it's it's kind of like if you make a $5 purchase on your credit card and you think, oh, well, that's nothing. And then the next day you make another $5 purchase and then you get to the end of, end of the month and you go, holy cow, um, this bill is way higher than I expected. And she explains the cumulative impacts of all these different pressures on endangered species habitat that way.
0: Can you explain a little about... Uh the downchain impacts of these species going extinct. It's not uh, simply like we will no longer have the fisher anymore. Um, there's a bigger environmental picture at play, right?
1: Yes, there definitely is. And, and that uh, global biodiversity report really highlighted it, really highlighted that losing biodiversity in nature has a direct impact on human beings. And I can give you one example of that, and I'll pick bats. Bats often get a very bad reputation, but um, they have basically been doing their thing for millions of years. Uh, they've carried uh, diseases for millions of years, or carried viruses for millions of years, I should say, that don't impact them, but these same viruses can be deadly for humans. So when we destroy bat habitat or the habitat of other endangered species, we, when we encroach on their uh, caves where they roost and uh, where they hibernate, it brings us into contact with these potential vectors of disease that again, don't hurt the animals necessarily, but they heard us. And there's no better example of that than the COVID-19 uh, pandemic that we're all in the midst of right now, um, which is thought to have started when a coronavirus um, in bats and in an animal called a pangolin, which is kind of like a scaly anteater, when they exchanged Uh, when they came into contact with each other and these are species that in the wild and in the absence of the destruction of their habitat in the absence of in the case of the pangolin human human trafficking of the animal would never come into contact with each other so if we want to look at this purely from a point of view, a, a, I would say, a rather selfish point of view from our own species' point of view. It behooves us to take action to protect endangered species and their habitat.
0: If nothing is done, um, and let's let's hopefully give the NDP uh, government, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say they hope to change it. But if nothing's done, how close? You mention the red list being like the ICU. Um, how close are we to? losing some of these animals forever. Um, How many are as close, for instance, as the the owl that you mentioned?
1: Well, we have, many species are quite close. And I will use the example of caribou. And if you look at uh, what's happened to caribou herds in this province, um, we have already lost seven caribou herds. They've become locally extinct. And um, many others are on the verge of local extinction. Um, they have only you know, six animals left, four animals left. So we're seeing this in very real time with uh, southern mountain caribou. And at the same time, the BC Timber Sales, which is a, the government agency in British Columbia that's responsible for auctioning off logging permits, is auctioning off cut blocks in core critical habitat for these endangered caribou herds. So we're, like, we're likely to lose many more caribou herds in this province in the next 10 to 20 years.
0: What can people who uh, are listening to this and, and probably uh, some of them have been getting angrier and angrier hearing this, uh, what can they do, especially if they don't live in B.C. or even if they're not uh, satisfied with just I'm always wary of ending with advice to like talk to your local politician. You know what I mean? What kind of organizations are out there doing work uh, that can help protect these animals?
1: so there there are all kinds of conservation groups out there, both local conservation groups, national conservation groups um there are the environmental law charity Justice has taken action on the spotted owl. They have sent a, a petition to federal environment minister Jonathan Wilkinson calling for an emergency order to be listed under Canada's Species at Risk Act. Because the big problem we have in Canada is we have a federal Species at Risk Act, but it only applies to species on federal land. And so the rest is up to the provinces. So, um, but in this instance, the federal government can compel the BC government to take action to protect spotted owl habitat. So, um, again, uh, following groups like Ecojustice, Wilderness Committee. A wild site in the Kootenays is, is taking action to try to protect endangered caribou habitat and to save the last viable herd in that entire region. Um, I think just, just getting informed. I um, uh, highly recommend reading that United Nations Global Biodiversity Report. Uh, I highly recommend just taking some time if you're in British Columbia and scrolling through the conservation data uh, website. Um, there's also all kinds of local initiatives if people want to get involved. There's one initiative on here on Vancouver Island where I live that's um, it's called SPLAT, and it's building uh, tunnels for at-risk amphibians like frogs and salamanders to help them cross a highway where they frequently um, get hit by cars. There are people who are trying to enhance habitat for endangered species by making their gardens and boulevards friendly for for bees and birds, uh, sorry, bees and butterflies. Uh, So there are many things that people can do on a local level as well as on a policy level. But I think the most important thing is to get informed.
0: Sarah, thank you so much for informing us a little bit today.
1: You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Sarah Cox, environmental reporter for the Narwhal. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can find The Narwhal at thenarwhal.ca. That's T-H-E-N-A-R-W-H-A-L.ca. You can, of course, find this podcast in your favorite podcast player, on Apple, on Google, on Stitcher, on Spotify, and many others. And if you have some feedback, we'd always love to hear it. You can email us at thebigstorypodcast at rci.rogers.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.